and I will trust in you alone. We sing it. We say it. But we honestly really believe it. I wonder this morning what's the, the heaviest burden on your heart. I wonder what's the, the thing, the problem, the issue that's weighing you down. What's the concern that perhaps was the last thing you thought about last night and maybe kept you awake for a time? And perhaps was the first thing that you thought of this morning whenever you woke up. Here's the, the principle that will be underlining everything we're going to say this morning, and it's this. That every problem that you have, every, every way that you face up to that problem, is related to, to what you think of God, how you believe in the Lord. If the God that you know and serve and love and worship and believe in and trust is a big God, a great big God. If that if your God is a big God, then then every problem that you have, every issue, every difficulty that you encounter, every trial that you face while it may break your heart and cause the tears to flow, those problems, those difficulties, those trials will be small in comparison to this great big God. But if your God is small, if your understanding of God, if your vision of God is of a small God, that every problem, every difficulty, every trial will be a big thing. It may, well, it may well be overwhelming to you. It's as simple as that. When God is big, then every problem is an opportunity for faith. For that faith to be stretched, to grow, to be expanded. But if your God is small, then every problem becomes a potential obstacle to that faith. And you will struggle. And you may not um, come through um, with, with your flag flying. You may stumble. Because all of life's problems, according to the Bible are deeply theological. Whether it's to do with your work or whether it's to do with your home or what's going on in school or whatever it is, all of life's problems, whether you're sitting in, a, in an NE unit or whether you're sitting beside someone uh, at a bedside, all of life's problems are deeply theological. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into your minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
and especially, I might say, whenever we're travelling through dark and shadowy valleys. What we think about God in those situations, what we believe about God in those situations, that's the most important thing about us. Because if our view of God, if our perception of God, if our understanding of God is faulty, is wrong, then there will be days that the burden of life may be for us too great to bear. And the thought of getting out of bed in the morning may be too much. But God does not want to keep us there. God wants us to get up and to trust him. In him alone. Because his endless mercy follows us every single day of our lives. And we will dwell in the the presence of the Lord forever. He wants us to know that. But we often struggle with it. And the people to whom Isaiah was writing in Isaiah chapter 40, they were struggling with exactly that problem. Down the generations, down the centuries, the people of Judah, the people of Israel had had drifted further and further away from God. They knew what God wanted of them. They just rejected him. They they rebelled against him. They, They disobeyed. And God fulfilled what he had promised. He said, look, if you keep on doing this, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring the enemies in, in on top of you and they will carry you away captive and you will dwell in exile for a time that you might learn to think about your sin and indeed learn to repent. But he says, God said, after 70 years I will bring you home, back to your homeland, back to Jerusalem. And we can start again, says God. And that is exactly what happened. Particularly here with the people of Judah. They had been drifting, as I said, further and further away from God. God takes them into exile in Babylon. And after 70 years, he starts to bring them back home. And Isaiah, writing long before this occasion, had written this chapter, in fact the rest of his book, from chapters 40 to 66, as it were, to await the returning exiles coming home. Because they were coming home with their questions. And the questions were, were this, you know, would, would God welcome us? You know, we have been such disobedient people. Is God going to, you know, ever get off our backs? Is God ever going to be our God again? Is God ever going to bless us again? Yes, we'll be living in the promised land. We'll, we'll be back in Jerusalem. But is God really ever going to love us and indeed... Um, Give us his grace. And Isaiah comes along and he says, in essence, in these chapters, he says, people of Judah, the people of God, get your eyes, get your heart back on God. Not on the God of your imagination. Not on that little tiny God that you, you think he is, but God as he really is. And of course, in these chapters, in the second half of Isaiah, that is exactly what Isaiah is doing. He is expounding the wonder, the greatness, the majesty, the glory of God, that they might learn to trust in him. Irrespective of their circumstances, irrespective of their situation, irrespective of their pain. 
the God that they know, the God who loves them, is a great big God who loves them with an everlasting love. Whatever it is this morning that is breaking your heart, that's a burden upon you this day. Maybe that your, that your girlfriend dumped you. I don't know. Just chucking it out there. Maybe you have exams and you're already worried about those grades coming through in August. Maybe you're undergoing treatment and the signs are not good. Maybe you're living with a husband or a wife who doesn't care anymore. And home is a cold place for you. Maybe you're worried about the, the waywardness of your children. Or maybe your parents are becoming more and more frail and they're still not converted. They're still not right with the Lord. Whatever the burden, Isaiah 40 is God's message of comfort to troubled hearts. When we think of the word comfort, he says here, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Whenever we think of the word comfort, it, it evokes images of, of warmth and consolation. Never mind a fabric softener. It's whenever it was whenever you want to chill out for an hour and you find your comfy chair. We satisfy ourselves with comfort food. For us, comfort is something that is constant that gives security, like a child's blanket that they hold on to. Comfort, we understand, is a state of ease and contentment. It's not for nothing that we talk about not wanting to move out of our comfort zone. And therefore we have to ask, is that the, is that the sort of comfort that God is calling for? That God wants to give us? Is the, is, is the prophet here to, to preach a message that is simply the, the verbal equivalent of some cuddly blanket or, a, or, or the chicken soup or indeed some consoling hug. Is that, is that all God wants for us? The English word comfort comes, of course, originally from, from an old French, a couple of words that are bind together to mean um, to fortify, to, to strengthen. Uh, to strengthen intensely. It's like putting a backbone into something that is wobbly and soft and, and floppy. And the word here in Isaiah 40, the word comfort, originally meant to cause to breathe again. Or to breathe life back into something again that is dying. And so God says, comfort, comfort my people. He's not interested in, in allowing us to, to warm our feet beside a, a warm heart. But he wants to breathe spiritual life back into his dispirited people who are overwhelmed by the problems of life. 
to assure them that he has not forgotten them, that they are safe and secure in his hand. And in the midst of their circumstances, he is outworking his good and perfect will and plan for their lives. And so he tells them in these verses a few things that they need to remember that they've clearly forgotten. And the first thing is this. He says in verse 1, comfort my people, says your God. God is still their God. That's the first thing. God is still their God. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. They are still his. They, Judah still belongs to him. We often take this for granted that we belong to God. But, but, but they shouldn't rush past this. One of the most pernicious effects of, of sin as it lingers even in the heart of the believer is the fact that we still often struggle to trust God. Like Adam and Eve, we are deeply suspicious of God. That's where it all started. Adam and Eve questioned, because they had been tempted, they questioned God's goodness. They queried whether God really had their best interests at heart. They wondered if God was simply living to his own agenda and he really wasn't interested in them and therefore they took matters into their own hands. They took from the tree that they should not have taken from and the rest is history. And, even, and ever since then, in all of us, as it's passed down through the line, we are as a people deeply suspicious of God. We wonder what he's up to. God, why is this happening to me? Don't you really care? I'm sure you've asked that many a time. Why did God let this happen to me or to him or to her? And what begins as doubt leads to distrust. And that leads to disbelief and to disobedience. And then from our perspective, a sense of distance between ourselves and God because we drift away, because God can't be trusted. Therefore, we are better working things out for ourselves. If that's where you are this morning, dear brother or sister, can I gently encourage you to read Romans 8 again? It may not answer all the questions that you have, to the problems in your life but he does say Paul does say in Romans 8 that since we know that in all things God is at work for the good of those who love him he sense he says then if God is for us and he is because he is our God if God is for us then who can be against us or what can be against us Faith is the conviction that God is for me, whatever the circumstances, whatever the pain, whatever the problem, whatever the burden, God is for me, for you. If you're trusting in him, 
You know, God does not play games with your lives. We are his people. We are the people that he has gone to an awful lot of bother to bring back to himself. Jesus went to Calvary to make us his people. And therefore, he's not going to forget about us. For his son has died for us. So God, whatever you're experiencing this morning, dear friend, dear friend, God is still your God. And secondly, because of Christ, your sin has been dealt with. He says here, Tell Jerusalem that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. See, what he's saying is this, that, that Israel or Judah's period of discipline and exile has been completed. They've learned the lesson. They can now come back. But move that into our day, and here's the equivalent. The equivalent is this, that God has already, already dealt with the biggest, most serious, most important problem in your life. Namely, your sinfulness and your alienation, your, your separation from God. That has been dealt with at Calvary. That is your biggest problem. That we are all sinners and we need a saviour. And Jesus is that saviour. And everything else, everything else fades into the background in light of that problem. Which God in his grace and mercy has already dealt with fully, finally, forever. Remember the story that Jesus tells of, or Mark tells of, um, of the paralyzed man? And he's carried towards Jesus by his four friends and the crowd is so huge that they have to go up on the roof and they dig down through the ceiling and, and they lower Jesus down. So they lower the man um, down before Jesus. And, and the first thing Jesus says to him is, not take up your bed and walk. The first thing Jesus says to him is this, son, your sins are forgiven. He was still paralyzed. He still couldn't move. He thought that was his biggest problem. But Jesus knew that his biggest problem was he was a sinner lost from God, needing God's forgiveness, and that's exactly what Jesus guaranteed. Jesus dealt with it there and then. And then he dealt with the very fact that he couldn't move. And then he said, okay, now you can take up your bed and go home. You see, the message that Isaiah is bringing here is that whatever else you're facing, if you are a real believer, if you've trusted in Christ, then your biggest problem has already been dealt with 2,000 years ago. Your sins are forgiven. And so back in Romans 8, 
Paul argues from the, the greater to the lesser that he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The cross of Calvary is the authentic, certified, divine guarantee valid for all eternity that God loves you. And that God is for you. And then it says, verse 2, that tell the people of God that they have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. Now, one of the papers that Bobby didn't pick, all right? Apparently, years and years and years ago, back in, in Old Testament times, that whenever you were in debt to someone, and you had the money, and you couldn't pay that debt. You were effectively bankrupt. In that culture, that was a mark of deep shame. And to, and, and to up that sense of shame, the one to whom you owed the money would take the bill of accounts and they would nail it to your front door so that everybody would know that you were in debt to someone else. But if through hard work or through a gifting of, of someone else's generosity, your bill was paid or your debt was settled, what would happen would be this, would be that the, the account would be doubled up and nailed to the door. So that everyone would know that your debt's been paid the account's been settled. And Isaiah wants the, the people of God to know that because of God's grace and mercy, their debt has been settled. They have no more to pay for because of their sin. Please, please do not think, please, please do not think that the pain of this day is somehow God Taking from you payment for your sinfulness. Something that you still owe him. Because Jesus has paid for it all, dear brother and sister. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We may not understand the pain. We may not understand the burden. We may, this, we may not, this side of eternity, ever get our heads round why that had to happen. But know this, God is still your God. Secondly, your sin has been paid for. And thirdly, God's words are utterly reliable. He tells us, all men are like grass and their, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. In those days, unlike here, over in, over, over, over in the Middle East, the grass would very quickly come up through the sandy, dusty ground. But because of the, 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 the heat of the sun, the, as, uh, as the grass would very quickly come up, so the sun would wither it. So it was there one day and gone the next. 
And some of us wish that our lawns could be, you know, uh, you know, tended to like that. Unfortunately, we can't go out and mow them every single week. Um, but in those days, the grass came up and then it went down again. And Isaiah is saying, hey, we are like that in how we make our promises. We say one thing and we'll say, yes, we'll do this. But maybe even with the best will in the world, we just can't, we can't fulfill that promise. Maybe we just lose interest and we just don't care. And Isaiah is saying, God is not like that. We make promises. We break promises. Mary Poppins talked about pie crust promises, didn't she? Easily made, easily broken. But he says, no, the word of our God stands forever. And what God has promised, he has all the resources. He has all the energy. He has all the skills. He has all the sovereignty. He has all he needs to make sure that what he promises, he will fulfill. And God will move mountains. That what he has promised to you, dear brother or sister, he will fulfill. Because he is committed to us. In fact, no one is committed to you as God is. Even your husband, your wife, they're not as committed to you as God is. God will never let you down. God will never break a, break a promise. So hold on to the promises of his word. That's what, that's what we've just been singing. Number four. He will continue to lead his people. Verses 9 to, to 11 talks about the fact that God is two things. He is, number one, he's a king. Now he's not like our queen, bless her. And you saw her, you know, um, Yesterday, you know, well-dressed, but frail. Not able to do things, things that she perhaps could have done, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And really, she is a constitutional monarch. She has actually very little power. But our king is, is, is really the king. What he says goes. What he says happens. And therefore, God, we can be assured, is in control of every single detail of our lives. He is the God of sovereign grace. So, so, so whenever, the, whenever the, the unexpected, the unwanted falls, into, falls onto your lap, it's not because God has somehow taken his eye off you. It's not that God has allowed you to wander off and, and you've gotten yourself into some bother. Strange as it may seem, the Bible tells us that God as king controls every detail of our lives. We are not just in Satan's clutches. God's in control. But he's also, we're told here, he's the shepherd who gently leads us. He is tender towards us. He is gracious. He deals with us as individuals. He knows what we're like. He knows that we're frail. He won't walk away. He walks beside us. 
You see, even whenever we walk down through dark and shadowy valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death, says the psalmist, don't fear any evil. Again, that, that's what we've just been singing. And I said to Gwen earlier on, I, you, know, you, you, you could not have picked better songs for this morning from Isaiah 40, because it's all here. Whenever we walk down the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil. Fear no evil be, why? Because he is with us. He is holding on to us with his nail-pierced hands. His presence, his grace is our comfort, is our strength. So he will continue to lead his people. That's the fourth thing. And lastly, number five, we're told here in verse, verse five, among other things, that God's glory will be revealed. You see, whenever the pain comes, whenever the difficulties come, whenever the problems arise, what's going on? See, James tells us that we are to count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, he says, whenever you fall into trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish, must finish its work in your life so that you might be mature. God wants you to grow as a Christian. He wants you to mature as a believer. He wants you to grow up into your Christ-likeness. Why? Because he wants to demonstrate to the universe, to the cosmos, that's what he says in Ephesians 3, he wants to demonstrate to everyone what it, what it is that his glory shines through your life in the midst of your tears because you're holding on to him. Because you're trusting in him and him alone. God brings us through times of difficulty that his glory will be revealed in us and through us and touch other people's lives he wants your life to be a living testimony of the glory and the grace of God You see, brothers and sisters, if you're facing exams this, this summer and you get a great F, which is not fun, but your great F is not the last word. Your disease, your weakness, your frailty, your cancer is not the last word. The loss of a partner through death or desertion, that is not the last word. You see, the Bible tells us that in all of life, Jesus has the last word. Because Jesus is the last word. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And we are safe and secure in his hand. And the Bible tells us that one day every eye will see him.
and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And yes, one day the, the sheer unbridled brilliance of the glory of God will be, will be revealed to all humanity and to the whole cosmos and we'll all fall down and we'll all worship the lamb that was slain. Yes, God's glory will be revealed then but you know what? Today, now, God's glory can shine through you as by his grace and strength you hang in there knowing that, knowing that he's holding on to you. Because whatever the circumstances, God is still your God. If he is your God. And if he's not your God, you need to get right with God. You need to trust in Christ. You really do. But if, but if you have, God is still your God. Your sin has been dealt with. For Jesus died for you. You can trust him because his word is sure and trustworthy. He will lead you on. He, he will not abandon you. He is your king. He is your shepherd. And his glory will be revealed in your life. And that's something too amazing to think about. That God will use us to bring him glory. Can you trust him? Whatever. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, just take these words and use them for your glory in our hearts and for the building up of your people, for the Savior's sake. Amen. Our final praise this morning, again, could not have been more uh, um, wonderfully chosen. Be thou my vision. Let's stand as we sing to God's praise. <laughs>